0: Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear, and do. This talk comes from the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au/events or follow us on Twitter at anu-events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk.
1: We acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people past and present. At our final event for 2014, we farewell Professor Michael Estrange, so it's fitting tonight that we start this year with the inaugural presentation from our new head, Professor Rory Medcalf, and uh, in a way, that's why we started this year a little later than usual. We wanted to start with a presentation from Rory, so we thought we'd sort of give give him a a few weeks to settle into the job before we asked him to stand up in front of a crowd. Um, I'd like to uh, start by acknowledging a number of guests here this evening. Uh, They're actually the Ambassador for Argentina and Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, the head of the EU delegation to Australia, Ambassador for Morocco, together with diplomatic representatives from New Zealand, PNG, ASEAN, Singapore, France, Switzerland, Netherlands, Pakistan and Brunei. Um, Senior ANU colleagues, Robin Stanton, Clive Williams, Hugh White and Bill Tau. Commonwealth partners, including Dr Margot McCarthy, uh, Michael Pizzula from our advisory board, senior staff from our participating agencies, uh, including Richard Maud, Roman Kodlovich, Rod Brazier, Martin Hoffman and Angus Campbell. And a number of NSC friends, including Alan Gindrell, Angus Houston, Chris Barry, Bob Cotton, some former staff, Mike Norris, David Connery, um, and some fellows, John McFarlane, uh, and also uh, another friend, David Irvin. Um, before we begin, in the event of emergency, you need to head out the uh, multiple glass doors in the foyer and head up to the uh, head up to the main road and across into the car park. Um, if you need the toilets, there are toilets in the corridors at either end. Um, or either end of the corridor, Uh, if you could also make sure that any mobile or related devices that you've got now are either silent or turned off. Uh, Proceedings tonight, will take the usual format that we use, so there'll be a presentation followed by questions and answers. I'll then invite Dr McCarthy from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet to make some brief remarks and then we'll move to a reception in the Canterbury Springbank Room. That's the same venue as we used for Professor Lestrange's farewell last year for those of you who are here, and if not, there'll be NSC staff to show you the way. I'm not going to introduce Rory Metcalf tonight in the normal way of talking through a a lengthy biography. I think you all know he joined us from the Lowy Institute and a career in government, including foreign affairs and the Office of National Assessments. I don't really propose to say more than that. Um, In a way, you know, the the CV is what gets you the jobs and now he's here, so it's what he does now, he's here that matters and um, you've all come to hear what he's got to say and what he proposes to do, so I'm gonna invite Rory to take the podium and make his remarks.
2: Thank you very much for being here, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's really quite humbling uh, to have such a distinguished audience. And I'm delighted uh, that I was able to leave it to George Brennan, our uh, Director of Strategy and Development, to uh, do the honours of, uh, of listing uh, so many of the, uh, the dignitaries, the senior officials, uh, the esteemed colleagues that are in the room today. Uh, saves my breath uh, for the, uh, the business of the hour. The Australian National University, as we all know, but we sometimes forget, I think, was established with uh, really an unashamed nation-building ethos. The goal was a world-class university in the Australian national interest, uh, with, in the wake of the Second World War, a weather eye on our national security. And just over five years ago, the National Security College was established in, I think, quite a similar spirit. So I look forward to building on its record, building on the founding achievements of my predecessor, Michael Lestrange, Professor Michael Lestrange AO, and carrying forward the work uh, over the years ahead. My commitment to this uh, important national institution is that it will foster effective, innovative and inclusive approaches to national security. In my view, this means helping uh, our friends in the room, the Australian national security community, to remain informed to remain connected and to remain responsive in a world of change. Part of this involves challenging the security community and the wider Australian community to think and to think anew and hence the title of today's speech. Why think anew about national security? Some would argue Australia has hardly been more secure. In a world of transnational problems, cross-border problems, we have the singular geopolitical advantage of an island continent. Our region is relatively prosperous, relatively peaceful. We have vast natural resource deposits and a developed economy that has undergone decades of growth, even now. We have high per capita incomes, high per capita wealth across the society and, to all appearances, a resilient multicultural society. And above all, most of us have known perpetual peace, freedom from conflicts, external or or internal, freedom from fear. Perhaps it is that we 21st century Australians are so fascinated with the centenary of Anzac uh, just now precisely because so few of us have direct knowledge of war. The Second World War, which scarred so many Australian families, was a lifetime ago. For many of today's Australians, the only prolonged experience of any kind of armed conflict on our soil, the warfare with the massacres of the first Australians, is even harder to imagine still the conflicts of recent years have really been involving only a very small minority of the Australian community and has affected only a very small proportion of our population and their families. So looking to the present, looking to the future, many of us seem to presume that whatever threats there may be, whatever challenges there may lie ahead, they will not challenge the fundamentally democratic, comfortable nature of Australia, the Australia that we know. Now, this is presumably because either the dangers are not our problem, they're far away, or we're sufficiently prepared to meet them. And certainly, uh, as we see assembled here today, and I would reiterate this point, Australia has a highly professional national security community. Relevant agencies and departments, not to mention the Australian Defence Force, the Federal Police, are substantially resourced, most of them much more so than 10 10 or 15 years ago. They attract good people, talented, educated, dedicated, this community is better joined up or connected and thus better managed than ever with collaborative leadership, guiding operational cooperation in real time, informed by intelligence services at home with the need to share. Recent improvements to the counter-terrorism machinery I think attest to this. Federal and state experience is being shared, lessons are being learned. And nor does Australia's national security effort want for high level political attention. I need hardly mention that. Whatever our own capacities, we also benefit from a military and intelligence alliance with what remains the world's most formidable power, the United States of America. So given all of the above, why bother thinking about Australian national security? Why should we try to think about it anew? Well, the short answer is that today's and tomorrow's Australia faces an era of change, of uncertainty and of fragility. Our horizon of risk is expanding. Critically, the gap that matters most to our security is no longer the so-called air-sea gap uh, that has long provided uh, what has been seen to be a moat between Australia and the world. It is instead the gap between our national interests and our ability to protect those interests. That gap is large and it's growing. And in a world of rising complexity, of interconnectedness and above all of uncertainty, the need for us to be prepared to make difficult decisions in order to protect those interests will likewise keep growing. Now, what are those interests? For a nation of 23 million people, Australia's interests are unusually extensive. Just consider the scale of not only Australia's vast territory, but our broader land and maritime jurisdiction, which combined makes up something like 5% of the Earth's surface. Australia benefits from an exceptional degree of connectedness with the world. This brings with it a reliance on rules, on order, on the global commons, on flows of trade, finance, information and people. These are national strengths by all means, but they bring with them vulnerabilities and interests that need to be protected. So, a contemporary definition of Australia's interests must go far beyond the obvious priorities of protecting the physical security of citizens, sovereign territory and resources. This definition of interests must also include maintaining national freedom, including independence of action, societal cohesion and a democratic political system. Australia will need to maintain the conditions for for prosperity as well, including secure access to energy resources, to energy supplies and international markets. Overarching all of these imperatives, Australia needs to work to protect and advance a stable and peaceful regional and international order. Now, of course... Hypothetically, a future Australian government could try to diminish the way that it chooses to define national security interests. It would be a perfectly valid political choice to make. For instance, we could try to wind back our accumulated sense of responsibility for parts of our wider region, such as governance, order, even disaster relief in the South Pacific. That sounds like a pretty harsh thing to say today, but I'm talking about politics in the long term. Indian Ocean Search and Rescue, Southern Ocean Fisheries Protection, activities in support of our very large Antarctic territorial claim. Now doing these things, that is withdrawing from these responsibilities, would make Australia a very different and very insular kind of country and in the long run a less secure kind of country. So in my view, we need to guard against and and discourage strongly that kind of future politics. But we can't consider it to be impossible. So instead, in my view, our interests are likely to remain extensive and rightly so. But to protect and advance those interests, we need to place a premium on partnership with other countries. Those partnerships, in turn, are a reason for Australia to uphold a reputation as a secure, capable, reliable partner in the international system, what might have been called honour uh, in the the days of Thucydides. We need to be seen as a country that is serious about protecting its interests in the context of a rules-based order and respect for the rule of law. Such international credibility as a partner, has a very hard edge to it. It's both an asset and a national interest in itself. Now, when these extensive national interests that I've listed are considered alongside the patterns of change and risk in today's world, and I won't go into great detail uh, about those, but think of the projected global trends that you read about in reports, uh, such as uh, those produced by the US National Intelligence Council, the, the publicly available global trends reports, one thing becomes very, very clear, and that is that the burden of security risk on Australia's interests is large and accumulating. So we need to refresh our thinking about how global trends will intersect and interact with our interests. Those trends include, very briefly, the impacts of disruptive technologies, of social media, of demographic shifts, resurgent nationalism, particularly in our region, but not only in our region, resource insecurity, environmental degradation and climate change. More immediately, however, among this widening array of risks, uh, the most obvious, in my view, are the following three. First, the risk related to coercion, risks of miscalculation and conflict escalation in our immediate region and our wider region, in the Indo-Pacific or Indo-Pacific Asia. This relates, frankly, to how China is using its growing power and how other nations respond to that. Strategic competition and conflict in Asia challenges directly our security and economic interests. We can't hide from that. Secondly, the gradations of aggression in other parts of the world that we are seeing, notably by Russia. Despite the horror of the shooting down of MH17, Australia cannot afford to concentrate its limited security capabilities for long on the Ukraine situation. However, at least on this issue, we are one country that can afford absolute frankness in our diplomacy, and that can be of wider benefit to the international efforts to manage that situation. And thirdly, violent extremism, jihadist terrorism globally and now at home. And I will return to this in some detail later in my remarks. To go back to the first point, Australia's region is becoming more central to global power balances and strategic tensions. Powerful economic connections are making this the era of the Indo-Pacific and I think that's becoming a widely accepted uh, concept, not only in this country but now across Asia. These patterns include East Asian powers' deep and growing dependence on the Indian Ocean, for its sea lanes, as well as on Australian resources for trade, for development, for energy. This is really about society. It's about keeping the populations of these emerging powers satisfied, their rising middle classes and their societies stable. It's about making sure that the Asian century remains on a positive path. But these economic and social patterns are having strategic consequences. Witness, for example, the very fast emergence in recent years of China as an Indian Ocean naval power, with submarines in Sri Lanka and warships exercising close to Australia's Christmas Island. As the successful and simultaneous visits last year by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Chinese President Xi Jinping spectacularly confirmed Australia's region has found us and there's no turning back. Here, with the Indo-Pacific, we at last have a definition of our principally Asian region, that automatically includes Australia. So I think that kind of ends at least one domestic debate. The downside is that this makes the region's tensions our problems too. This is an inevitability, it's not a choice. Regional power balances are changing with China's rise and its rapid growth year on year in military spending. Such change could encourage risk-taking by some states, whether by China, as it asserts its new strength, or by others, as they seek to set boundaries early in this new great game. Yet, being closer to the world's economic and strategic centre of gravity makes it impossible for us to treat these unsettling regional security dynamics, such as in the South and the East China Seas, as if they were purely somebody else's business. Now, in all of this, we are far from helpless. The idea that our strategic weight, in its broad sense, is insufficient for us to have any impact on regional order, I think that idea is outdated and exaggerated. Australia can contribute, to regional order and security, including as part of the emerging balance of credibility or balance of uncertainty that will be critical to deterrence and stability as China's power grows. We need to think harder about how best to make this contribution. This includes how to encourage other powers, other regional powers, through our own example or through forming creative and functional middle player coalitions, if I can call them that, with Asian security partners such as Japan and India. Our central Indo-Pacific geography, our advanced maritime capabilities, our interoperability with the United States and our regional surveillance advantages all provide us with an edge here. It's false in my view to suggest that the alliance with the United States comes at the expense of Asian partnerships or of pragmatic multilateral diplomacy. These approaches can be mutually reinforcing if we handle them smartly. The presence of US Marines in Darwin is is already proving of some benefit to Australia in engaging third countries in training, as confirmed, for example, by a three-nation exercise involving China last year, and I believe there'll be more exercises uh, with third countries in the years ahead. There's also scope for us to work much more with China as a security provider in the region, as the search for the MH370 airliner demonstrates. The need to find ways of working with China as a security partner will intensify as Beijing expands the pursuit or extends the pursuit of its Indo-Pacific economic and strategic interests through the so-called maritime Silk Road, which in my view is really Chinese for Indo-Pacific. The challenge is to ensure that closer cooperation with China does not come at the expense of our US alliance or of regional solidarity in upholding the right kind of regional order. That is one that recognises China's legitimate interests while also upholding rules and discouraging coercion. In all of this, we need to be realistic about the potential as well as the limits of security cooperation with China under conditions of regional mistrust, and we have to assume those conditions will continue. Navigating all of these complexities will require much better resourcing of our defence engagement or what we might call our defence diplomacy, and that is not a contradiction in terms. This side of our defence policy has, in my view, been treated and resourced as a third-order issue as almost an afterthought in some cases for far too long. In all of these circumstances, we need to work smarter, as I've said, combining diplomatic and security capabilities precisely because our relative regional (coughs) weight could decline as other Indo-Pacific powers increase their own through sustained economic growth. These do not just include China. They include Indonesia as well as India. We will want to focus on partnership with these powers while maintaining a sense of proportion and of national self-respect. True partnership works when others respect our interests and recognise that working closely with us is not about doing us a favour, it's in their interests too. In all of this, we should see technological change as involving at least as much opportunity as risk. Disruptive technologies will alter calculations of military advantage in our region, so we need to think anew about how to be on their right side. Australia has unique opportunities, as I've said, a combination of technology, of geography and the US alliance to keep and sharpen its edge in areas like surveillance and intelligence. We need to be willing also to invest considerably more in emerging capability areas, like space, like cyber, and autonomous or at least unmanned systems, which actually suit quite well the characteristics of our geography and our small but educated population base. Australia also needs to be unsentimental and unapologetic about seeking and maintaining asymmetric security advantages in an uncertain region. After all, to reiterate where I started, our energy, information, trade and human links with the outside world make today's Australia a vibrant, prosperous place, but they also make Australia vulnerable. Thus, for instance, many Australians, including our business community, are becoming well aware of the ease with which cyberspace can be used for disruption and espionage by foreign entities. This should be of greater concern to the Australian public than Australia's own existing or proposed security measures such as in the area of data retention. More Australians are also becoming concerned about the vulnerabilities of our seaborne energy supply lines and our frankly frugal stockpiles of liquid fuels, far below the 90-day oil stockpile obligations that we've signed up to under the International Energy Agency. The need to build energy resilience is emerging as a national security priority. Hence the appeal of interesting new ideas like converting metropolitan transport fleets to Australian natural gas to reduce an acute dependence on diesel imports. All of the risks and vulnerabilities mentioned so far suggest that the number and the kind of security contingencies or scenarios that could affect Australia's interests will grow in the years ahead, we will be challenged to do more things in more places. As I've said, Australia's own security will therefore require a willingness to make judicious but meaningful contributions to securing our lifelines to the wider world. Australia will need to protect its sovereignty, to provide security in a troubled neighbourhood and to contribute to the security of the broader Indo-Pacific and beyond. This will sooner or later involve questions about whether Australia alone can always be the security provider of last and sometimes first resort in the South Pacific and Papua New Guinea. In theory, a future security crisis across PNG could overwhelm our capacity to respond. To recapitulate then, Australia's interests are large and they're growing. Our sovereign security capabilities cannot keep pace. So there is a premium on partnerships to guard our interests in an uncertain world. New threats have not replaced old ones but joined them on a more crowded horizon. We cannot protect our interests alone and yet, To have the best chance of building and maintaining the partnerships that we need, not only with the United States but the other partnerships we need, we must also have the credibility that comes with doing our best to provide for our own security. And so the concluding question I have for you is this. Are we really doing our best? It can be argued that Australia continues to fall short of its potential as an effective security actor. We're still in transition from the Australia of the past of the Australia of the past few decades a country that relied for its security primarily on the combination of a stable, regional and global environment and a not particularly demanding US ally. Perhaps it's become, unquestionably, it's become more demanding over the past decade. But now the strategic environment is less stable and the ally is more demanding still. And yet, frustratingly, it's becoming less than clear about its own strategy or its own priorities. Added to that, our own ability to set security priorities is being shaken up by worsening dangers of terror and radicalisation at home and worldwide. Now, of course, a national security statement focused exclusively on terrorism is a misnomer. It's incomplete. Amid entirely justified present-day fears, we must not lose sight of truly strategic risks. We don't want to find ourselves in a grand replay of the post-9-11 years. For at least five years after 9-11, a policy emphasis on terrorism, on Iraq and Afghanistan, by America, and to some extent by its allies, made it harder to anticipate or respond to the way that China's rise would affect Indo-Pacific regional stability. We can't afford to go there again. But how then to set priorities? For instance, how to prioritise the immediate security threat, and I have no question that it's an immediate security threat, of terrorism, the wider strategic priorities of the changing Indo-Pacific regional order and dealing with longer-term trends still like the security repercussions of environmental pressures and climate change. The simple answer, and it's a simplistic answer I know, um, is that we need a layered response, a response that deals with each problem on its own time scale. Nor should we imagine that all of these risks exist in parallel universes. They interact in ways that we are just starting to understand. A common thread is the way in which they threaten order. And improving our ability to respond to one challenge through demonstrating seriousness of purpose for a start through building national resilience and through forming security partnerships can help to some degree in responding to others. Now, in acquiring our own new security capabilities to respond to this era of uncertainty, we do need to be constantly looking for flexibility, for adaptability, for versatility. Like it or not, devoting substantial resources to national security, broadly defined, will need to be an accepted part of the Australian policy landscape for as far ahead as we can see. In all, This is hardly a context in which we can afford our national security debate to become any more politicised, whether on counter-terrorism, whether on the alliance, the rise of China, the development of major capabilities such as submarines, or how to cope with a troubled neighbourhood. We need a maximum of political consensus on these issues. The good news is, of course, that a large measure of consensus and bipartisanship has long existed, for instance, on the importance of the US alliance. And some of the partisan divides of the past are actually withering away. Notable among the, these is the increasingly artificial debate between a narrow Defence of Australia concept, formally associated with labour, and a far-flung expeditionary approach to military force posture associated with the coalition. I would argue that a more accurate and contemporary way of thinking about Australian grand strategy is the idea of securing our lifelines to an interconnected world, or at least making a serious contribution the security of those lifelines, including to encourage partners. The idea of securing our lifelines in an uncertain world, apart from anything else, is a nice way of calling time on this weary expeditionary versus DOA contest that so many of us are familiar with. But a country of our limited capacities cannot afford to be complacent about maintaining and building consensus. It needs to be renewed with each generation And there is a hidden fragility, in my view, a potential fragmentation of public opinion and political views across much of the national security, defence and foreign policy agenda, including on the best ways to respond to terrorism or to strategic change in Asia. Just because we haven't seen the full evidence of this yet doesn't mean that it's not coming. How cohesive is Australia on matters of security, really? How resilient are we, really? What do young Australians think about these issues? Now, in a country where more than one in four of us was born overseas, where our major cities, uh, in our major cities, the number of us born overseas was more than one in three, what do first and second generation migrants think about Australian national security issues? There's a growing body of research in these areas, including some polling data, including at this university and at the Lowy Institute, but there's a need for more and for deep analysis because there are many Australians now, more Australians... uh, absolutely is contributing members of this society from more places, including from East Asia, from South Asia, from the Middle East, which means a much more complex mosaic of views about security issues than Australian governments have ever had to deal with or relate to in the past. This will make national consensus building on security harder. It will also make it more necessary. Now, how will any of these societal shifts in attitude about security and external policy translate into political party platforms or the views and stances of parliamentarians. After many years, in which very few Australian politicians had any direct experience of the the Defence Force or other areas of national security, their numbers have started to, to grow, their ranks are beginning to grow. That's a welcome development, in my view. It would be simplistic, though, to assume that this will translate into uncritical political support for the military, and nor should it. It would also be good to have a clear sense of what different political forces, such as the Greens, for example, are proposing as practical alternatives to existing national security policies. What would a comprehensive Greens national security policy look like? What we cannot afford is any further politicisation of the national security debate, not just on the part of the government of the day, but by any side. Thus, for instance, the acquisition of the next submarine, and for that matter, the one after that, needs to be based coldly on ensuring the best capability and our ability to sustain it, as well as on cost. That includes what may be the multi-billion dollar opportunity cost, the other security capabilities or social programs we would not be able to afford from a political decision to accept a massive made in Australia or made in South Australia price premium. Now, of course, politics is not the only part of the national security house that we need to get in order. Australia cannot afford for national security to be solely the interest of a professional Canberra-based security caste, many of you my friends, many of you my colleagues, many of you in the room today, which, confident in the knowledge that it is striving for the national interest, just expects the rest of the country to let it get on with the job. I hear a few sounds of recognition uh, of that thought. The national security community needs to accept that intensive, sophisticated public consultation and outreach will be a constant requirement and a priority for policy making. It's not window dressing, it's not an afterthought, it's not a box to tick, it's core business and we need to keep trying to do it better. Uh, And if this observation comes from my having spent the past eight years living in Sydney and uh, engaging with um, business and other parts of the Australian community, including multicultural Australia, well, so be it. We have to work much harder to ensure that the security debate in Canberra is recognisable to the wider population and is recognisably in their interests. This is a necessary but it's also an achievable task because, like it or not, national security is becoming everyone's problem. That's why it must now be, in my view, a national priority to ensure that no part of the community feels like it's being treated as the problem. For instance, we should not be critical of a whole community, Muslim Australians, based on the actions of a tiny minority of misguided individuals. Those are not originally my words, uh, but those of former ASIO Director General David Irvin, who's with us today and who I'm pleased to announce today will be joining the National Security College as a visiting fellow. The need to ensure that national security policy is owned right across Australian society is also why government is correct to seek to connect the idea of citizenship with the idea of responsibility as well as rights. Incidentally, on the eve of the Gallipoli landings, of the centenary of the Gallipoli landings, there's a good case for more to be done to associate Australia's ANZAC history with civic values of citizenship and responsibility rather than with heritage. And I think there is a risk in associating ANZAC too much with heritage. We're beginning to see some of that in my view. There are many in the community who seem to think that national security is not their problem or indeed who think that national security policy is the problem It's an unwarranted affront to liberties. It's a sinister political trick. It's a diversion from other government priorities in tough fiscal times. It just keeps us in business. Now, those who sincerely hold those views need to be willing to suspend their preconceptions or their posturing, suspend the conspiracy theories, and engage in a first principles conversation. This should be an open-minded conversation about how best to preserve the security and the cohesion of the society that has afforded all of us Levels of political freedom, of personal opportunity and physical safety that most of humanity has never experienced. Now, as some have observed, the national conversation about security so far is not really a conversation at all. It's been a case of very different constituencies and communities talking across one another. In addition to our core work here at the National Security College in training government officials and providing academic education, core work that I need to maintain and will maintain uh, as absolute priorities of the college, the National Security College will contribute to that conversation. We're proudly part of a leading research university, so much of that contribution should be through rigorous and independent research that we will commission and we will support. Our researchers hold diverse views and they express them and they'll continue to do so. We will also be a platform, however, and a convener for constructive dialogue and discussion with the national interest at heart. One way to get this national security conversation onto a more fruitful path is to recognise that Australia's security problem requires multiple responses across multiple timescales. On terrorism, for example, there's little question that counter radicalisation and showing the emptiness of the Islamic State narrative are essential tasks. But even the best efforts on these fronts will take time and trust building. In the meantime, It's imperative not only to minimise the number of Australians attracted to the terrorist cause at home or overseas, but to minimise the harm that they can do. Right now, the most pressing national security priority must be to prevent further atrocities of a kind that would damage social harmony in multicultural Australia and inflict damage that we do not yet know how we would repair. The question then, becomes how to maximise the security community's chance of success in preventing terrorist violence without poisoning the nation's medium and long-term capacity to erode the appeal of terrorist propaganda. This is not a choice, both are priorities. Thus, it's incumbent on the critics of counter-terrorism measures to offer their best ideas on how to reduce the chances of further terrorist attacks or, alternately, to acknowledge their willingness to risk those attacks and their potentially dreadful impact on Australia's core qualities of social tolerance and trust. A new and inclusive Australian security approach must extend to other risks as well. It will involve a recognition that we need to face multiple challenges at once, some that can be met or deterred by limited or limited by principally military means, but others that cannot. A new Australian security will involve a recognition that seeking to mitigate or adapt to the security implications of challenges like climate change is not an alternative strategy to ensuring that we have a leading-edge military designed to guard our interests against a breakdown in an an uncertain regional order. Again, we need to do both. The time scale is not the same for every threat. In fact, some threats are going to confront us more in the immediate years ahead than in the long term, so it may be a matter of weathering the storm. That means we cannot be complacent about old-fashioned threats like state-on-state coercion, which are very real today just because we're mindful of pressures like climate change into the future. Ultimately, a new and inclusive approach to Australian security requires that as a nation, we step up our efforts to engage and employ all the qualities we have. Advanced technology, strategic geography, a strong ally, promising partners, a private sector increasingly conscious of security, an educated population, exceptional cultural diversity, and of course, our democratic system, our democratic values. Thus, the fact that the Australian Defence Force and other policy and security agencies are lifting their game in ethnic and gender diversity is good, but it's not good enough. To match the new shape and the potential of Australia's dynamic society, patterns of recruitment and employment in the security community will need fresh attention. Cyber capabilities, for instance, could well be a natural fit for a new kind of reservist, a national cyber security reserve, involving creative work arrangements and flexible exchanges with private industry would transform traditional notions of what soldiering is about and what new generations with new skills can do for their country. And I hasten to add this may be a civilian reserve, it may not be uh, strictly a military reserve. It's, It's something new. We haven't yet sort of imagined even what it could be. There's a pilot project in the UK underway at the moment that might provide some insight. So just as Australia's political and social history has been about increasing inclusion, so too would I argue that inclusiveness will be the essential quality of a new Australian security. To conclude, that is inclusiveness in several ways. A wide, inclusive definition of national security interests. An inclusive understanding of the means by which we need to protect and advance those security interests. And finally, an inclusive, flexible mobilisation of our diverse national assets, people, the private and public sectors, geography, technology and partnerships, uh, both within other countries or with other countries and within our own country. As we know, as we're taught, I guess, security is the first duty of government. Even so, the idea that I've proposed tonight of a new and inclusive Australian security may be open to the accusation, to use the academic term, of securitising the issues rather too much, and I stand accused. But such are the times we live in, and such, in my view, is the challenge ahead. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter Magazine. ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.